The following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at 10.15 or check us out at DeeringChristian.org. You can turn today to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10. Um, we've been looking at If Then for, this is, I believe, the fourth week of, of If Then. And we're going to wrap it up this week. And basically, If Then is, is what this means. If Jesus is who he said he was, if he truly lived, if he truly said things that still can have their impact today, if we believe all of that, then what does that mean in how we respond to him? Almost 2,000 years later. If, then. You know, this week, it was, it was on Thursday that, that Donna and myself, we tackled a project at the house that's been looming for quite some time, um, and it was a tree that had to come down. It's kind of getting underneath the foundation of the house and starting to cause some trouble. So, so we, cut that, we cut that tree down, and I can tell you right now, as we were doing this project, which involved chains, straps, a tractor, chainsaw, I had, I had, I had my holster ready, all right? And what I mean by that is, is this. You see, this tree, portions of this tree were leaning directly over our house. And the trunk of this tree is less than 15 feet from our house. So I had my holster, I had my holster ready. And what I was ready to pull out is this one. That's just great. That's, 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 just, that's just great. How many, have, have you said, how, how many, okay, we're going we're gonna to just do something right here. I've got a confession to make when it comes to the word great. I use it more sarcastically than I use it genuinely. Okay? So let's just see if how many of us are in the same frame of mind here at times. Okay, if you are someone who more often uses the word great genuinely, raise your hand. Okay, now put your hands down. If you are someone who uses the word great sarcastically, raise your hand. Oh, I'm going to pray for you people, all right? You're right, I'm right there. I am right there with you. Um, how would you truly define genuinely a great day? How would you define greatness? So I said, we're talking about if and then. And here's the question. Jesus, Jesus defined, wait on that question here just for a second. Jesus defined greatness in a way few people in our world would truly get. It take a very, as my grandpa would say many years ago, savvy, savvy person to understand what Jesus would mean by being great. So here's the question. If he was serious about what it means to be great, then what does that mean for us? Today, I'm going to tell you right now, some of Jesus' closest followers weren't always that savvy, as my grandpa would say. This is what's going on. We've got to set this up a little bit as we look at Mark chapter 10. Um, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time, okay? He has recently raised a friend of his named Lazarus from the dead. Raised him straight up from the dead. Lazarus has been dead four days. Jesus raised him from the dead. Now the Pharisees, Jesus' main opposition, they aren't waiting for Jesus to get to Jerusalem. 
to question him. They, they seek him out so that they can question him and try to trap him with their questions. It never works. You'd think they would give up after a while, and they eventually do. Because it never worked for them, all right? Um, Jesus, on his way, has an encounter with a very wealthy young man. And if you remember, four weeks ago from today, that's where JB started this whole if-then venture that we've been on. So that kind of sets this up for us. Now turn to Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. We've already looked at the first part of this because JB did that three, I guess it was not four, it was three weeks ago that JB did that for us. Okay? Um, Mark is the second book in our New Testament. He is one of four gospel writers that wrote their narrative of Jesus. And remember, when Mark is writing, he wasn't there walking with Jesus. He got his story, if you will, his version of the account from a guy who was there, and matter of fact, pretty prominent, a guy named Peter, the Apostle Peter. Okay, all that, we got to keep all those things in mind. All right, we're just going to read one verse here to begin with. We're going to be looking at several today. Mark 10, 32. It says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed... And those who followed were fearful. Now, typically when you read about Jesus doing something and the people around him being amazed, it usually had something to do with either his teaching, he was telling a parable or something, and they're just like, man, this guy, this guy knows how to teach. He just he's something else. Or he just healed somebody or, goodness, he just raised somebody from the dead. And people are amazed. But this time they're amazed about something different. You see, last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, it was made pretty clear that you come back, you're going to die. Okay, you come back and you're not going to live through that encounter. So the people are amazed that Jesus is heading back to Jerusalem. Now, his closest followers, his disciples, capital D disciples or capital A apostles, there were 12 of them. It says they weren't just amazed, they were fearful. You see, because some others in the crowd could kind of just kind of go away. But these are the 12. They've been with him for three years. They're not going anywhere. They're going with him. To Jerusalem. Matter of fact, when Jesus set his mind to go to Jerusalem several weeks before, you know that doubting Thomas guy? He gets talked about a lot on Easter time, seems like. All right? You know what Thomas said about that? He said, Well, if he's going to Jerusalem to die, then we're going to go die with him. Doesn't sound like a doubter to me. All right? So, so the disciples are, they're not just amazed, they're afraid. All right? You see, trouble awaits them. Now, this is the interesting thing. Where is Jesus in this procession? Where is he? Is he in front or behind him? He's in front. How many of you walk at a different pace from your spouse? Who walks faster, the woman or the man? The woman? The man? Uh, okay. I, I, I would say it depends upon where you're going. Okay? Because there are times that I'm walking along, bebopping, and I turn, and she's like way, way back there. And then there's other times that that she's kind of moseying along, and she's up there. And it depends on where we're going. If we're going to, if we're going deer hunting, woo, I'm, I'm, I'm on the way. If we're going to Coles, it's like, oh my goodness. And it's not that she really likes Coles. It's just, well, she kind of does. She she shops some, all right. But I hate it. 
Okay, so what it amounts to is your motivation to get to the place, your determination to get there often shows which one is going to be in the lead. Jesus knows exactly more than any of them what's awaiting in Jerusalem. And yet he's out front marching forward. Determination. And right there we get... Just a picture of greatness. We'll see more about that as we continue on. Okay, let's start back with verse 32, and let's jump through verse 34, okay? They were on their way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed him were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside. He began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. This is the third time that Jesus pulls his closest followers to him and tells them what's going to happen. This is the third time he predicts his death. This, this third time has more detail than the other times it had. And all of these times it happened within the past couple of months. Um, when, you, when you put Matthew and Mark and Luke together, um, we, see, we see a number of things. Um, we see that, that, that this time Jesus talks about, it'll be the religious leaders behind this, um, but they're going to hand them over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to be a part of this. And for the first time, Jesus doesn't just say that, that he will be killed or that the Son of Man will die. He says he will be crucified that is the roman roman execution mode of execution the jews they stoned but jesus says he will be crucified and then jesus makes that easter prediction what we celebrate today three days later he will rise again you know luke adds a detail that 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 mark and matthew leave out and luke's detail is this It's that, and and this will help us understand what happens next a little bit, okay? Luke's detail is this. The disciples just didn't get it. It's it's like Jesus just sat here. He pulled them in close, and he explained to them what's going to happen, and they did not get it. And the wording in which Luke uses seems to imply that that was kind of a divine thing, that God kind of hid from them what was going to take place. And it's amazing. In, in the passages like Melvin read for us this morning, it's like God lifted the veil. And it's like, oh, wait a second. Jesus talked about this. He said, he said all this was going to happen. Um, but that will help us to understand that they did just not quite get it. All right? I'm going to run through a scene with you that happens in our home quite often. Looks a little something like this. We're sitting down and we're eating supper. And usually there's one member, sometimes two, but usually one member of our family who still has something left on her plate. All right? And she says, I'm full. I'm done. I mean, it's like right here. I eat, I eat anymore, and it's just all coming. I mean, I'm full. I cannot eat another bite. And I'm like, Donna, hun, it's, it's okay. It really, really is. No. no, it's not her. 
And then usually that, that is followed by, by this. Um, you know, you're not eating anything else. I see some heads shaking yes. Have you had these conversations in your home? Nothing else will be eaten by you in this house until you go to bed. Now, here's, here's what we can do. We got a deal for you. We can keep your plate or what's left on your plate and put it on the counter. And if you get hungry again, like never happens, you've got something to eat before you go to bed. Okay? And then you are reassured by this family member. No, I'm not going to get hungry. You can throw it. Give it to the cat. Give it to the dog. I'm not going to. Okay. So, and then it's over and done with. Everybody goes to sleep, right? No. Because it happens in your house too. 30 minutes later, can I have some ice cream? And you know what? If, if she's feeling very, very desperate, she will say something somewhat healthy. Like, can I have a cheese stick or an apple? Because you can't, you're, you're a parent. You can't turn down like a celery stick. It's like, celery's not food. Surely they'll give that to me, you know? It happens every time almost. And I look and I'm like, say what? Do you remember the conversation we just had? I said, we said nothing. You will eat nothing. Now, unless you want to go rip it out of the cat's stomach, you're not eating anything before you go to bed. Okay? Nothing. And you just cannot believe it. And you're like, how can you forget this? You know, Jesus had a couple... 12 little boys following him around. Look at verses 35 through 37. Jesus has just told, and now bear in mind what Luke told us about Jesus telling them this prediction. But still, it is mind-boggling. And let's see the next thing that comes out of the mouths of the apostles. Jesus told them he's going to die. James and John, two sons of Zebedee, They came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus has just laid it all on the line with these 12 guys following him. All right? Laid it all on the line. And yet, I don't think it's just two of these disciples. I think all 12 of them are expecting, this is how Mark Moore puts it. He says, as they're going to Jerusalem, they are expecting more of an inaugural ball than an execution. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a little bit. James and John, I think that they know that their question is is somewhat the wrong question at the wrong time here. You know how I know that? It's because Matthew gives us one detail that that Peter, dictating to Mark, leaves out. It wasn't James and John who asked Jesus this question. They asked Mommy to do it for him. Okay? It's like, he might tell us no, but he can't. Who can tell Mom no? Not even Jesus. Okay? So they send... Mom to ask Jesus that her sons may sit on the right and the left. Now, Jesus sees through their plan completely, and he doesn't address her. He's just like, it's okay, Mom. I'm sorry, because she's probably like, look, they put me up to it. I'm sorry, okay? Jesus turns, and he talks directly to James, 
and John. You see, these disciples, you've got to understand something here. and Maybe this will, will help us feel for a little bit for them. I'm, I'm not sure if that's quite the right way. But the disciples for two, all going on three years now, have seen Jesus outwit and outmaneuver his opposition time after time after time. And I promise you, as they're heading to Jerusalem, they're fearful, but they think, we're following Jesus. He's got this under control. He's not going to die. This is Jesus we're talking about here. Matter of fact, it's going to, he's, he's going to, it's going to get crazy, but Jesus is going to win. And when Jesus wins, James and John say, we want to be on his right and his left. When he comes and his, his kingdom is, takes his place of power, we want to be on his right and his left. And after all, James and John, they're two of the inner three. You remember Jesus at different times would take the three of his disciples with him on the Mount Transfiguration. He took Peter, James, and John. You got two of the three. Surely they're like, hey, he's, he's going to take us anyway. Let's continue on. Verse 38 through 40. I just can't imagine the expression on Jesus' face as he answers. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and and you will be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit... On my left or my right is not for mine. It's not mine to give. It's for those for whom it has been prepared. Now I know Jesus uses what we call some churchy language there. But what Jesus is getting at is this. He lets these two brothers know that, that what they're asking for is not a promotion. All right, He says, if you really want to stick close to me, what you're going to get is persecution. You want to be right here and right here, just understand what that means. I'm going to die. And they say, hey, we can do it. We can do it. And he says, yeah, you're right. You will have to do it. James. Now, I'm not talking about James who wrote one of our books in the New Testament. That was Jesus' half-brother who would later become an elder in the church in Jerusalem. Right, right now, James isn't too tight with Jesus, okay? All right. This is, this is James, one of the apostles, and there's two of those. So I know it gets a little confusing. This is like James the greater, and then there's kind of like James the lesser, and then there's James, Jesus' half-brother. So it's like crazy, crazy, crazy. All right. This James would be the first... Of the apostles, I say 11 because Judas killed himself, would be the first of those remaining 11 men to die for his faith in Jesus. Now John, on the other hand, would live a long life. But that life would be filled with persecution. And his life, before it would end, he would be exiled on the island of Patmos. These men would learn firsthand Jesus' words 
that you come with me, you're going to suffer. But he says, I cannot give you what you ask. My father has determined that. Well, here comes the drama. How many of you like drama? I don't like drama. On the movie screen or in the home. (laughs) Jayhawks got beat last night. It was a rough night. They didn't just get beat. They got destroyed. It's tough, wasn't it, Scott? Deborah couldn't even watch it with us. Two grown men bawling on each other's shoulders. She's like, I can't take it. I'm going upstairs. You two just stay down here with your Twizzlers. It's good comfort food. It's tough on a type 1 diabetic, but hey, Jayhawk's lost. My doctor would understand. Isn't that right, Robbie? Yeah. Yeah, they lost. You know, um, the tough part, the really seriously, the tough part was watching was watching Devontae Graham. You won't know any of these names if you're not a KU fan. He's a consensus first-team All-American. And him coming off the court with about 45 seconds left because Self put the, put the, the walk-ons into the game to say that they were able to play in a Final Four game. That's not the way you want to put your walk-ons. You want to put your walk-ons in the game because you're destroying the other team, not getting destroyed by the other team. But regardless, he puts them on, and he does that for two reasons. So they can say they played in a Final Four, but to give the opportunity for the crowd to react to the players that have been out there playing all year long. And Devontae came off the court. And if you know anything about the relationship of Bill Self and his players, they're usually pretty close, but there was something pretty special between him and Devontae. And Devontae just came out and he just put his head on his chest and the tears just started flowing. And you could see the words in Self as he got him right by his head and he says, you're the best. You're the best. Right? He's his captain. You understand that? That's his captain who just came off the floor. And that's what you do as a coach. You choose, you choose your captains. Um, the best captains have to be talked into the job. That's the best ones. It's like, nah, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm the right one. Those, that's, the, that's, the rest, uh, that's, that's like the best ones right there. But, but if you want to destroy team chemistry... Then you start politicking for the job of captain. All right? Say, I'm the one. I, I'm the one that you need, coach. It's just me. I'm the best one. I'm the one. I'm, you can depend on me. Because it just doesn't go over all that well. Why don't you turn to verse 41? James and John really think they're going to get away with this? Verse 41, hearing this, the ten, the other capital A apostles, began to feel indignant with James and John. I just love the way that that's put in English. They began to feel indignant with James and John. That means they're pulling out their cell phones and saying, can you believe this? Can you believe this? It's predictable. The interesting thing about this, if you read between the lines and the way Jesus responds to them, they aren't upset with J and J, James and John, for bothering Jesus. 
with this when Jesus has just poured his heart out. No, they're upset with J&J here, James and John, because they beat him to the punch. They all wanted those spots, the left and the right. When Jesus came in his kingdom, that's what they all wanted. And you can just see the turmoil beginning, and man, it's about to get with it. And Jesus is just sitting back, and he's just shaking his head. He's like, come on. Come on, guys. Come here, fellas. i got to talk to you. Verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for the many. Jesus says this, if you really want to be great, you follow me. I came to serve. And that is the path of greatness. He said, the Son of Man, I came to give my life as a ransom for many, ransom is a commonly used term in the Greek language, meaning this. It was well, the word that was used when somebody went and paid to free a slave. Jesus came to pay the price to set people, to set us free. And he says, if you want to be great, you follow me. We're going to look at some things here and let this sink home to us. This is what Jesus has to say in his words about greatness. All right? If you're a note taker, this is your time. All right? This is what Jesus has to say about greatness. First thing he has to say about it is this. The road to greatness, the road descends before it ascends. You want to be great? You're going to have to get low before he lifts you up. Secondly, greatness is completely misunderstood by most in this world. Did you catch that in verse 42? He called the disciples to himself and he said, You know that those who are the rulers in this world around you, you know it, they lord it over the people around them. They exercise authority over the people under them. And they'll step all over each other to get to that place of authority. Does the world still operate in that way? People stepping on others to gain power over them? Yeah. You see, greatness, real greatness is completely misunderstood by most in this world. Even in the corporate ladder, the truly great ones many times are closer to the bottom of that ladder than the top. Now, there's a few at the top who get it, but they're few and far between. Number three, genuine greatness. Genuine greatness is revealed in the midst of suffering. You got that? Boy, does that sound like fun? 
Genuine greatness is revealed in the midst of suffering. And number four, Jesus' primary promises are eternal. Now, it's funny. When we say of etern- talk about things eternal, we kind of get, um, I don't know the word for it. I don't know if it's, if it's churchified or what. I, I'm not sure what the word is. We just think of something that's just that's so far out there, so untouchable. A lot of Jesus' promises are in the future, absolutely. But they're real. But this is the deal. Much of the fulfillment Jesus offers, physical fulfillment, will not take place until his kingdom comes. In other words, Jesus is a lot more concerned about the state and the place of our soul than the comfort of our body. Jesus' primary promises are eternal, yet to come. All right, so if that's what Jesus has to say about greatness, then let's look at it this way. If Jesus' recipe for greatness is accurate, and I hope we would believe that, then the question we have to ask ourselves, then can I really say I'm destined for greatness? Question number one we got to ask ourselves is this. Do I regularly serve others outside the church building walls? Don't get me wrong. Serving one another inside the walls of this building is pretty awesome. Matter of fact, we've got a number of people doing it in the North End right now. And I'm thankful for that because it's really tough to preach to a group of people when there's 50 babies out there. I I love babies. Don't get me wrong. Okay, but it's tough. I should take that back. 50 toddlers, 50 toddlers. Let me rephrase that, all right? I can, I can deal with babies. Toddlers, Woo! yeah. So serving people inside the walls of a church building is important. And I, I thank the Lord God above for the people who taught me in Sunday school when I was 8, 9, 10 years old. For the people who came out as sponsors at Hidden Haven Christian Camp so many years ago. Love them. People made a tremendous difference in my life. But here's the question. Am I serving people outside those contexts? Am I serving people at work? Am I serving people at school? Am I serving people at Walmart? (laughs) When you're not working there. Sorry about that. You should serve them if you're working there. All right. It's Walmart way. I worked at Walmart. Yeah. All right. Another question we need to ask ourselves, number two. Have I personally suffered for Jesus? Have I personally suffered for Jesus? You know, Jesus, um, quite a conundrum, all right? Incredible paradox. And this is the paradox that we see in Jesus walking and reading about him. He loved people. He loved all kinds of people. He loved people that we might be tempted to call nasty, yucky. He loved them. And yet he did not refrain from telling them the truth. Go your way. 
sin no more. Leave that life behind. I don't know how he did it so incredibly successfully. Probably because he's Jesus. But he calls us to do the same thing. And if we take a stand for truth in this world and love people who are opposing us taking that stand, we will suffer. That's the nature of the game. And the question I have to ask myself is this. Have I personally suffered for Jesus? And if I haven't, I better be asking myself why not. Number three. Am I really satisfied with Jesus' promise of heaven? If Jesus did nothing else for me or for my family, from here and the end of my days, would I still be satisfied that his blood paid the price for us to get to heaven? It was Saturday, you know. We all like Saturdays, don't we? It wasn't a great Saturday for Jesus' disciples. We call it Good Friday. It wasn't good for them. We call it Good Friday because it's good for us. But it wasn't good for Jesus. I'm sure looking back on it, Jesus sees it a little bit differently. His disciples might even see it a little bit differently, but man, that was a that was a that was a bad, that was a tough day. And then Saturday rolls around, and Jesus' capital D disciples, there's eleven of them now, they are completely lost. They don't know what to do. Some of them kind of hung around Jerusalem, some of them went home. They're just like, they've been following Jesus three years and he's gone, he's dead. And he never told us what to do once he's dead. He never told us he's going to die. And you're like, yes, he did. But remember, they're kind of cloudy on that right now, okay? They're lost. The Passover is drawing to a close. That means all the festivities in Jerusalem are coming to an end. And this is the time that the street sweepers come out and they start cleaning everything up, you know. Everybody's headed back home. They're scared. The disciples, they're confused. And they're lost. And I guarantee you what Peter's saying. This is just great. Yeah, good day. I guess I go fishing again. Come on, Andrew. Let's go catch some fish. This is great. This is what I follow, follow Jesus for for days just like this great day but we know the rest of the story we know that Sunday comes after Saturday we know that the tomb was vacated and everything changed seven weeks later these lost confused scared men Seven weeks later would begin changing the world. And they would finally learn what it means to become great. And they started something that's still going today.
That's the way our God works. He's a great God, is he not? Is he a great God? We're going to pray here in a moment. After I get done praying, I just, I'm going to ask you to stand. Just remain seated. Uh, we have something that we, we want to, to show you, um, to let you know what's coming um, these next few weeks, um, and then talk to you a little bit about that. And then we'll close and go eat some ham for Easter. All right? Okay. Would you pray with me, please? Our Lord God, we come before you. Father, we thank you that we serve a risen Savior. We thank you, Father, that Jesus showed us not just with his words, but with his life what it means to be great. Father, give us the power by your Holy Spirit to become great people, to learn to put ourselves in places of service, to love people, Lord, when they don't love us back. Lord, we thank you so much for those 11 men, for all of the times we look at them and just wonder how they could be so obtuse, so dumb sometimes it seems, Lord, that you would take those men and you would change the world with them. Lord, you can still change the world with your people. We pray that you would use us to do that. Help us, Father, to follow in the footsteps of your Son this week. Help us to live Easter every day of the year, not just one Sunday. We thank you, Lord, for your promises. And we thank you that Jesus is not only alive, but he's coming back one day to take his people home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.